0: Welcome to Dyslexia Canada's Spotlight. The goal of this series is to create a national dialogue about literacy and the systemic barriers that have prevented so many students from becoming confident and competent readers. But the tide is turning. Across Canada, educators, researchers, and advocates are coming together to put evidence into practice and to advance the right to read. We want to share their stories celebrate their successes, and have an open and honest dialogue about the challenges they are facing. Because we know that by coming together, we can ensure that every child in Canada gets off to a good start with reading, school, and life. In this episode, I'm excited to share with you a fascinating conversation amongst three experienced educators and teacher educators sharing their varied perspectives and their work as a literacy improvement team in both provincial and First Nations school contexts. Our three speakers are Julia O'Sullivan. Julia is a PhD professor at the Institute of Health Policy Management and Evaluation at the Dalilana School of Public Health at the University of Toronto. Her research and development work is focused on children in underserved schools and their right to be taught how to read and write. She is a former Dean of Education at Lakehead, Western, and the University of Toronto, and a founding National Director of Canada's Centre of Excellence for Children with Special Needs. Since 2010, she has served as a Chief Advisor to the Early Literacy Project at the Martin Family Initiative. She is a champion for literacy as a human right, an Indigenous right, and a critical determinant of health and well being and she is an untiring advocate for teacher education reform. Joining Julia is Steve Stiers, the principal of Hillside Elementary at the Kettle at Stony Point First Nations. As principal at one of the two First Nations schools that participated in an early literacy project, he prioritized early literacy and led his school to achieve outstanding outcomes in early reading achievement capturing national attention. Steve is a strong advocate for integrating Indigenous perspectives in all subjects every day in the classroom and challenging the provincial curriculum that negates or diminishes Indigenous ways of being. He's also a strong advocate for challenging the Canadian government to create an equal playing field when it comes to First Nation education and eliminating systemic barriers that prevent First Nations from creating educational systems that reflect First Nations students and the communities they come from. And finally, Vaughn Stoika. Vaughn has been an educator for over 40 years and has served in a variety of roles, including teacher training, school improvement, and curriculum development. Her extensive teaching background includes special education and second language acquisition. At the Ontario Ministry of Education, Vaughan worked directly with schools and boards across Ontario to design and implement plans to improve literacy achievement. Following a successful pilot project in First Nations schools, Vaughan has continued to apply key lessons learned with teachers in schools across Canada. Welcome.
1: Um, thank you, Alicia, for the wonderful introductions. I've sort of been um, coerced into being the MC uh, for our group. Uh, to begin, we would like to thank Dyslexia Canada for inviting us to come along and do this webinar. We're thrilled to be here. Thanks also to the Institute of Health Policy, Measurement and Evaluation at the Dalla School of Public Health at the University of Toronto. They're hosting us here in this room and um, are responsible for the fact that all the IT works We're not going to touch anything. (laughs) No, we're not going to touch anything. Um, We've organized um, this webinar as a conversation amongst the three of us. We want to discuss our experiences working on early literacy improvement with provincial and First Nations schools across the country. We'll talk a little about who we are, how we came together as a team, the schools we work with. Um, the things we've observed, how schools can break the cycle of systemic underachievement, um, and what the outcomes and the big payoffs are for children when that happens. We also want to talk about how fragile sustaining progress can be. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so, uh, who are we? We've uh, worked together on early literacy improvement, as I say, in provincial and First Nation schools for um, twenty years but we're not old. Um, We began um, on a provincial project here in Ontario called the Schools in Need of Extra Help, which was later renamed um, the Turnaround Schools Program. Vaughan uh, designed uh, that program for the province and uh, essentially schools applied. You had to be a school where at least 70% of the children were underachieving in reading by grade three. Um, And schools got uh, considerable sustained support for three or four years, both teachers and principals. That was a turnaround program. Uh, When it uh, came to an end, Paul Martin, the former prime minister, um, rang us up and asked if we would work with schools on First Nations reserves, if we'd start a pilot and see how it would go, and together with the schools, try to adapt turnaround for the First Nations um, contexts. There are approximately 430 First Nations schools that are um, run by uh, their individual First Nation community. Most of them are elementary schools, and you're gonna learn more about them from Steve um, as we go along. So let's say a little bit about the schools we work with. Um, All the schools we've worked with and continue to work with over the years share a history of chronic systemic underachievement in reading. What that means is uh, we're talking about schools where by the end of grade three, at least 70% of the children are at least two years behind. If you finish grade three with a reading level of a grade one student, you are at risk of not graduating from high school. You are at risk of um, incarceration, health problems, under unemployment, um, and all the other difficulties that go along with not being um, a high school graduate and and earning a a living wage. The schools we work with um, also share common barriers.
2: Absolutely, Uh, First Nations schools, Juan, I can talk about that after you. No, go ahead. Okay. First Nation schools, I think a lot of people don't even realize we have our own schools. Um, They're standalone schools. They're funded by Indigenous Services Canada. And there's great systemic barriers uh, that exist with our schools. There's really substantial underfunding, three to $4,000 per pupil difference uh, from funding. But I think the bigger systemic issue is the fact that we do stand alone, is that we don't have the second and third level services that provincial systems have. And I'll talk a little bit more about how those impacts of not having second level services uh, can really affect the school in multiple ways, teacher retention, uh, student success. But I'll also say a little bit later, I won't get into it now, that we don't use those as excuses. Uh, We find ways to circumvent and work harder to overcome those.
1: So there's very little data available on reading achievement for First Nations children in First Nations schools. Um, Our work is an exception. We do have uh, data, uh, longitudinal data for almost 3000 children that we worked with over the years. In fact, if you look across Canada, there is no uh, reliable picture of the state of early reading from coast to coast to coast. Most provinces have some sort of assessment. Not all do. And the assessments differ depending on the jurisdiction. Some use standardized tests, some use informal reading assessments, some use just teachers' opinions, and some use nothing at all. If you look across um, all of these uh, provinces and reports of achievement in reading, um, I've come to the conclusion, uh, and it's a conservative estimate, that at least 20% of children who enter kindergarten this year will not acquire the proficiency and literacy they need by the end of grade three. 20% of children means 100,000 children, because on average we have 400,000 children in Canada who begin kindergarten every year. Go into any kindergarten classroom and you might already be able to pick out who are the children who are going to have difficulty. Um, We estimated uh, 100,000 a year before the pandemic but we're talking about children who are uh, the most vulnerable children in Canada. The children in the schools um, we work with are mostly children who grow up in poverty, indigenous children, children with special needs, racialized children, um, and children whose first language is neither English nor French. They will carry um, a differential burden of the pandemic on top of the burden within schools that they were experiencing before um, COVID-19. The averages uh, that the provinces report uh, mask uh, big differences among schools. So the 100,000 students in grade three at the moment who are not meeting expectations are not distributed proportionally to schools across the country. The vast majority of them are enrolled in the sorts of schools that we work with, where most of the children are two years behind, um, where their needs are not being met, where their right to literacy, uh, reading and writing achievement, um, they're they're just not inheriting it. Um, Saying all that, there are common challenges. Steve has talked about the First Nations schools, I'm talking sort of about the provinces, um,
3: and uh, even within school boards, alone. In school boards, um, oftentimes when we have data, we have an average of the data. Um, With the schools that we work with in the provinces, there are pockets uh, of schools with chronic underachieving that you don't see at the board level when they're averaged out with schools where children are performing well. Um, But they still exist within every every school board. The schools that that we work in,
1: It would be extremely rare to find a child identified with a dyslexia, or um, as we would uh, see dyslexia, difficulty processing sounds below the level of the word. The reason for that is because when the whole class is struggling, when the whole class is two years behind, it is extremely difficult for a teacher to discriminate why. That said, there's absolutely no evidence to suggest that the uh, incidence of um, dyslexia is any higher amongst children in these schools versus any other school or among First Nations versus non-First Nations children. We've been at this for a very long time in all sorts of schools and all over the place. Um, What are some of the common barriers that we have seen?
3: Want to start with teaching? Sure. Well, actually don't think that teachers across Canada go into their classroom every day and say, gee, I think I'll do the worst job I can do today. (laughs) I think they go in uh, prepared to do um, the best they are able to and the best they know how at the time. And research is pretty conclusive on the fact that it's teacher efficacy that makes a difference. It's the heart and the art of teaching. So what do we know about the teaching of reading and writing? How are we able to apply that knowledge within classroom settings? Uh, what resources do we have to do it with? And what levels of intervention are in place um, to ensure that the children that need extra help actually are properly supported? Uh, over the decades, policy changes have led to less prescriptive uh, curricula. So I've been an educator for uh, many decade decades, and I've watched the pendulum swing back and forth, uh, cycles of uh, instructional ideologies. Um, for years, teachers came out of training, they were handed a curriculum, very little on-the-job uh, coaching or mentoring Um, It kind of led to an approach that we see in a school, I call the buffet approach. Uh, This is when I came out, so this is what I do. Well, I like this, so I'll do a little more of that. And um, teachers did seem to to demonstrate that they love the photocopy machine. (laughs) Um, There's often a lack of consistency across schools and even within a school, uh, between grades and even within grades, there's inconsistency in what's happening. So historically, uh, the dominant instructional ideology of the day, um, they've come from educational institutions and they've funneled through a top-down approach to boards, to schools and trickle down to teachers. Um, And as teachers begin to try to implement the changes, uh, they find out, oh, no, we've we've started to do this now. And there's this, it's almost like watching a tennis ball slowly moving back and forth. Um, one of my favorite examples that, that's a recent example that I use is um, a kindergarten teacher who came in to prepare uh, the class, um, put up uh, an alphabet, um, very nicely formed letters as models with a good uh, keelig picture and uh, word printed underneath. And... Um, she was grieved, uh, so she had to take it down, and was told that unless um, the children or particular children demonstrate an interest in learning the alphabet, uh, that she shouldn't be putting it up, and then it should only be something that's co-constructed uh, because it's rather abstract and maybe not developmentally appropriate at this age. Um, I do think the tide is turning on that, which that's is good, really good. Real good. <laughs> Um, so individual teachers and individual schools and some boards, um, they are taking steps to delve more deeply into the research and what they can do to ensure that, uh, children leave grade three with the requisite skills needed for, um, future academic success, uh, in the schools that we work in, it's imperative that literacy becomes a priority and that you stay the course with it. It's not like, yes, we fixed literacy, we've had foreign in in-services. Uh, too many competing priorities just waters down that progress. Um, there's a convergence of research on what needs to be in place to ensure that children acquire the necessary foundational skills. The difficulty lies in how that research is effectively applied at the classroom and intervention setting level. Uh, with the needs of a wide variety of children?
1: Um, There's, I think, quite a divide between um, the research and then the classroom. And um, the further removed from the original researcher and the original setting, the more convoluted, simplistic, and so on it becomes. Uh, You see things in classrooms being done in the name of research, including my own, which would... uh, just be would appall the people who did the work in the first place. So part of the solution to this, I think, is more uh, university, uh, school um, partnerships and research, especially at the classroom level. You know, if you wanna know what teachers know, if you wanna um, uh, produce work that's gonna be useful in the classroom, you have to involve them, you have to know their context, and you have to be able to test things out there. Um, I believe that, um, Teaching is the most important profession in the world and that the most important level is primary because it's primary teachers who are called on to teach children how to read and write. And I call being able to read and write by the end of grade three, the golden ticket, because it is the golden ticket for school success. If you cannot read well uh, enough to keep up in grade four, you're headed on a totally different trajectory in education. There's no question about it. Some people would say it even starts in kindergarten, Um, but certainly by the end of grade three um, streams, whether they're recognized or not, there are different streams within school systems. All of the teachers we work with, both in provincial and First Nation schools are certified teachers. Um, In Manitoba, certified by Manitoba, in Ontario, by the Ontario College of Teachers. Everywhere we go, we have certified teachers. And um, most are overwhelmingly committed and work really hard. But you see teachers doing things that they put tremendous effort into that (laughs) don't make any sense. Uh, For example, uh, we were in a classroom not too long ago, a grade two classroom, where the children were being taught how to write with blindfolds. So it was the blindfold on, then you try to write the blindfold off, then you try to write again. And I said to the teacher who uh, was very well-meaning, why are you doing this? And she said, oh, somebody at the university wrote this program and said, it's great. Um, and I said, why do you think it might be help, help, help children to, to, to write if they can't see? And she thought about it for a few minutes. And then she said, you're right, Julia, I'll stop. We've, um, We were in a a grade one classroom in a provincial school where the teacher had obviously been up all night. She had created beautifully um, laminated um, green eggs and ham from the Dr. Seuss book. And the children as their literacy work were playing tic-tac-toe with the green eggs and ham characters. And, uh, you know, she, was really committed to it, she was dedicated, she thought this would be good. And she spent a lot of time preparing. Absolutely. If we're going to ask teachers to do the most important job, especially in primary, that there is in the country and for the future of the children, we have to prepare them and then give them the support they need. Vaughn has talked about what happens once they enter the profession, Um, but I can tell you that um, Before they enter the profession, all teachers in this country um, complete a Bachelor of Education or a Master's of Education, one or the other. We know from surveys in Canada and from international surveys of teachers that teacher education programs do not prepare teachers well enough, especially to teach reading and writing to children who struggle. The International Literacy Association um, uh, conducted a big survey a few years ago with over 60 uh, countries, including Canada, and 65% of the respondents said the greatest inequity in early literacy is the inequity in teacher education. Um, Our teachers um, that we work with, and they're not our, I shouldn't be claiming ownership, but when we work with teachers in the schools, um, sometimes they will say, oh, You've come here to work with us because we're not good teachers. We always have the same reply. You're very good teachers. You're as good as anyone else. The gap we're here to fill is the gap between what you learned in the Faculty of Education and what you need to know to teach these children well. Um, I've been a Dean of Education at three universities in Ontario, as Alicia mentioned, Lakehead, Western and the University of Toronto, OISE. Um, I've been an external reviewer and Bachelor of Education and Masters of Education programs um, outside of Ontario and other universities around the country. Um, The situation is similar everywhere you go. And the teachers we see in the classrooms come with the same knowledge and uh, and preparation. They're not bad teachers. They're doing the best they can. um, And it's extremely unfair, I think, to put them in this sort of a position.
2: Teaching of as an administrator, I'm very well aware that teachers are the most influential people around student success. As an administrator, I'm the second. Um, I, I fully realize and appreciate good teaching because once again, it is the first influence around student success. But in our context, again, we have trouble recruiting and retaining teachers. Our teachers in most reserves are paid substantially less than the province. Uh, so it's difficult to recruit and retain those teachers we also put extra some extra um, I guess demands you could say on on the teachers working in First Nations one of those demands is that if you're going to apply to our school uh, you need to be very well aware of the systemic issues that you're going to face and secondly that you're not going to use those as excuses so every I've been very lucky in the schools I've worked in fabulous teachers fabulous staff which isn't always the case in first nations. Going back to that issue of recruitment and retention, but once again, we don't use those excuses. And and because we're a standalone school, we don't have those boards of eds that provide PD, direction, um, and uh, auxiliary support. We have to do everything in house. And once again, I've been very lucky to work in schools where. We have excellent teachers aware of the systemic issues, aware of the strategies to circumvent those issues. And and we create very high standards for ourselves, knowing that we're in a a lone context and knowing that there's some things out there, Ontario, curriculum and other structures that may inhibit us in being successful. But once again, very lucky that I've worked at schools where they are.
1: So Steve, uh, many First Nation schools um, across Canada are coming together to form commissions, or board-like organizations. Uh, There are several uh, from British Columbia all the way to um, Nova Scotia. And as First Nations schools increasingly take control, or First Nations communities increasingly take control of their education, it looks as if things are going to change. I mean, most First Nations schools teach the provincial curriculum Mm -hmm. and take direction from ministerial guidelines. Um, And a lot of what we have seen in the First Nations schools across the country don't make any contact with the children their community um, or their um, their language and culture what I mean by that is the things coming from the ministry and other organizations designed for the provincial system
2: right. Um, so if we do have those second sort of quasi second level services but they're in no way funded or supported the same way that provincial boards are. So, we have some people who are trying some really good inventive, inventive things. We have people really trying to think outside the box to help systems. But I always want to, you know, once again, no excuses, but I always want to bring to mind about the systemic issue Sheila Fraser's report from 2004, which said if we had uh, an equal playing field in 2004, in other words, an equitable indigenous uh, education system in provincial, it'd take 26 years to close high school graduation rates. Here we are in 2022. If we had a magic wand and created an equal playing field, which we're far from, it would probably take 50 years. So what that tells me is that we're trying very hard. We have these, these second level uh, bodies that are trying to help, but we're constantly sliding backwards, due to these systemic issues. And so, you know, it just requires us to work harder and harder and think more and more outside the box to make sure our kids are successful.
1: The pandemic is making it worse most of the schools we work in um the attendance was not great to begin with and uh as of now hasn't even recovered to the pre-pandemic levels
2: and we know uh research is telling us it's going to take three to five years of regular attendance just for students to catch up so these things are being compounded in our in our um in our communities uh so once again we have to work harder and harder and come up with more strategies to think outside the box once again ideally. That equal playing field is what's demanded by us, and and it was ethically right. Our children deserve the same support and the same uh, opportunities that other children in Canada have. Uh,
1: We should talk a little bit about the leadership we have experienced in all of the schools, Provincial and First Nation, and um, their role in supporting
3: literacy improvement and what we've seen. I think there's a bit of an issue with leadership right now at the school level. Um, I know that a lot of the boards are having difficulty filling uh, principal and vice principal uh, positions. Um, A lot of people are retiring and uh, more and more people are going into the role um, younger and they don't have a breadth and depth of teaching experience or experience across multiple schools. And Uh, quite a few of them lack a lot of knowledge about how to pull a school together and they're looking for guidance from without uh, their school to the board. Um, And uh, it's a a bit of a crisis in terms of staffing in many areas, lack of substitute teachers, um, lack of teaching assistants. Um, In some cases, classrooms are doubled up because the teachers haven't uh, Uh, are sick, uh, because teachers are still reporting that they're sick, they're getting the flu, they're getting COVID. Um, And although this is not about leadership, but many of the teachers are reporting that because of the pandemic, many children didn't actually attend school at all for a couple of years. So they're coming back into the system. Um, They're going, they're being placed grade appropriate for their age, but they haven't had any school. So the teachers are faced with this giant gap uh
2: where instruction. With um leadership, I'm, I'm going to talk about good teaching throughout this. Uh, research proves good teaching supersedes social economic conditions at home. So in most of the schools, if not all the schools we've worked in, social economic situations are are very influential and in, in barriers that for student success. But in the schools I've worked in and some of the the schools that we've seen that have been successful, they don't take those excuses, they don't take those things and say, oh, we can. not Good teaching is almost, I would call it magical. It can supersede a lot of things. so as an administrator, I need to value my teachers. I need to be aware of the influence they have around student success. And I need to make sure my my teachers are supported, um, that we are talking among each other, that we're we're collaborating. and it's very easy, and we're going to talk a little bit more, a little bit later on about deficit notions. It's very easy when you don't have uh, those successes in a school, or you may have a couple years where, or or whatever the situation is. It's very easy for people to start internalizing the lack of success. So we start looking at ourselves, we start blaming ourselves, uh, and, and the worst thing that can happen is we start blaming children. Uh, and that's why in First Nations context, we always talk about good teacher. Uh, Good teaching, superseding social economic conditions and all those other uh, systemic barriers that we have in schools.
1: Um, We all agree with that, uh, with Steve. Uh, We know that there are many factors outside of the school that really impact how well children learn when they come to school. Um, The school communities we work with, there are high levels of poverty, food insecurity, health issues. They all impact learning in school. And, school and, and student attendance in particular. Um, for some of the children we work with, the only safe place in their life is school. They come to school to eat and they come to school to sleep. I've been in classrooms, both provincial classrooms and First Nations classrooms, where small children sleep the whole day on the reading carpet in the room because it's the only place that they feel safe enough and can go to sleep. So we know all these things, we know the school can't do everything, but what the school can and must do is teach those children to read once they are there and um, awake and alert. And there are lots of things that can go into place and we've seen them work well. Um, um, Nurses in school settings who have set up clinics um, to work with children so they're not missing a lot of school. Um, school nutrition programs. Canada is one of the few, if not the only country in the G20 without a universal school nutrition program. Um, All of these services can be brought to the school uh, to help children um, do better um, and um, facilitate their ability to to learn how to read and write. You know, um, rights to education are guaranteed In the United Nations Declaration on Human Rights, the United Nations Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People, the United Nations Charter on the Rights of the Child. And current laws in Canada mandate that children be schooled and have access to education. The problem is, in none of these declarations, charters or laws, is there any mention of the quality you can expect once you get there. Access is not enough. There has to be a focus on quality. We would like to see the laws change to reflect the fact that the most fundamental guarantee in education should be the right to literacy by the time you're nine or ten. People say to me, who can I sue, Julia? Who can you sue? What if everyone who was let down in the system showed up in Ottawa or in the provincial ministries and demanded accountability. The schools we worked with, um, we know that what we see in those schools is preventable. But despite decades of research and school reform and policy think tanks and all the rest of it, little has changed over the years. And the system that is supposed to promote equity and equality is playing a huge role in the opposite direction education the grade leveler is just perpetuating the inequality in society and the main uh, medium for that is through literacy education this has gone on for years and uh in many schools it's just accepted there will always be all of
3: these children who will never read and write well why is that why well we've had the opportunity to travel to uh, many schools um, within many different boards in Ontario, and also um, in First Nation schools across Canada. And in the schools we visited, um, there's chronic underachievement. And when we talk to the principals and and teachers and uh, ask them what factors they think are impacting the achievement, the answers, it doesn't matter where you are, are always the same. The parents don't do enough at home. If only we had more educational assistance. (laughs) Uh, We need more resources. We need more specialized classes. Uh, We need more computers. And my favorite is, if only we had more apps and more iPads. (laughs) (laughs) What we actually didn't hear was we need more support and time to examine our practice and strengthen our teaching strategies. Because when you're a teacher and you're doing everything you know how to teach reading and writing, but you see very limited progress, there's a tendency to attribute the issue to be inherent within the child and the family and to begin to feel that you don't have much power over changing it. Um, One result
1: is the over-identification of children with special needs in in schools where this, uh, sort of a culture has set in uh, some of the schools several of the schools we work with over 50% of children kindergarten to grade three have been identified as having special needs of one kind or another um, then um, their an IP is written and then it's filed away in the filing cabinet and that's more or less the end of that um, I have never seen uh, research on the efficacy of special education or of an IEP uh, but I think in this, in many of the contexts we work with, once the IEP is done and the box is ticked, that's the end of that. Yes? Yeah. Yeah.
2: In most cases.
1: This is very unfair, too, I think, to parents, because um, most of the parents in the schools we work with do not know how far behind their children actually are. I've yet to see a report card where it says Your child is going to grade four, but reading at a grade one level and will never catch up. But that's the reality in the schools um, uh, we work with and in similar schools around the world. As you go through the grades, more and more children fall further and further behind. Parents don't know, if you don't know, how are you going to advocate? Um, There's very little relationship between in the work we've done the report cards, and we actually what we actually see in 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 the children's reading, um, but parents have a right to know, don't you think,
2: Steve? Absolutely, and we've we've talked about that in the schools I've worked in about over inflating marks, over inflating comments. We 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 have a great understanding that these conversations, as difficult as they may be, when you're talking to mom or dad about a child struggling they have to be honest conversations and of course from those honest conversations about some of the the struggles the child is having we have to have some hope there we have to deliver some hope and um, if you don't have that opportunity if you don't have maybe some proven strategies or proven uh, experiences in your school it's kind of hard to create hope when you have long-standing um, short of, of, of student success in schools and once again first nation schools most of these schools are not successful due to that big disparity in in funding and and resources so as brutal as it is in the schools i've worked in you have you have to engage community Um, we know research says the strongest team for a child is home the child in the classroom and so you have to bring that community in you have to bring the families in and you have to start having those honest difficult conversations and together Once you have those conversations, then bring in the hope, and the hope includes home, um, things can start turning around.
1: And schools have to take responsibility for this, I think. I mean, we've been in several situations um, where I've said, you know, the parents are not getting um, um, up-to-date information. You're not sort of telling them the real situation. Why aren't you? And the response has always been, because we'll be blamed. We'll be blamed. We, the teachers, we, the school, will be blamed. Um, And you hear that in schools where, as Vaughn was talking about before, they just don't think there's anything they can do that's going to make any difference. But at least they can avert the blame. Um, years ago, I did a lot of research uh, in Eastern Canada, out in Newfoundland, and there was a similar situation in many of the small rural schools I worked with at that time. Um, the report cards were indicating that children could read this, 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 this and this. Um, and the reality set in um, at the start of high school when many of those children couldn't fill out um, an application for a job. But This can all get turned around (laughs) and we want to give you a couple of examples of um, what we think uh, this takes and then focus in on a some small, a small pilot um, and talk about that
3: particular. So there's no silver bullet. Uh, There's no special pre-packaged program. Say it again. Uh, Say it again. There are no no silver bullets. (laughs) If you just buy this online subscription, just send for this guru, the bottom line remains. It's always about the skill of the teacher and the knowledge. So how do we work with with, uh, schools? Time is very important. Uh, First of all, children need to be uh, present And there needs to be sufficient non-negotiable time dedicated uh, to ensure a comprehensive literacy program is in place. And by comprehensive literacy, we have to ensure that we're um, building oral language skills for listening and speaking, um, that we're including phonemic awareness, that we're including uh, direct instruction in phonics, vocabulary, fluency, and comprehension and we're um, addressing the needs of the students as we see them. Uh, We started with a minimum of a hundred minute literacy block in place with no interruptions, couldn't go out for gym or go skating because it's a nice day and there's a rink. Um, (laughs) In the beginning, the teacher really didn't really know how to fill the hundred minutes. Uh, As a matter of fact, one teacher in grade three said, well, I'm a grade three teacher, we don't even teach reading in grade three. Um, But as the teachers learn more, um, they begin to realize that a 100-minute minimum is a minimum. They actually need more time. And also, as they move along, they realize that they can be teaching literacy throughout the day. Um, Time is also finite. So we provide continuous, ongoing, job-embedded professional learning opportunities for the teachers. Uh, Teachers prefer learning with and from each other. Um, In both the provincial programs and working in the First Nation schools, we worked intensely with the teachers for three to four years. We work on pedagogical knowledge, so just teaching in general, because sometimes classroom management is a a barrier. Um, We also work on content knowledge, like what is it we're supposed to be teaching? What do these words mean? Um, It's interesting because depending on when you had your teacher training, um, or even when you went to school, um, one of my uh, children, my oldest daughter, was an Ontario scholar. She went through school in Ontario where it was just not on to teach any grammar or any structured writing, and no spelling. Consequently, that's still a weak area for her. Now, um, some of the teachers don't know uh, what a short vowel is or a long vowel or a digraph or diphthong. They don't have that actual content knowledge. So, as we're working with them, we're teaching them. And then, of course, the pedagogical content knowledge about once you know this content, how do you teach it uh, to the children? Uh, we attempt to match the theory with instructional practices that they can try in the classroom. Um, because it's ongoing and it's shorter sessions, um, it's not like a, a big wing ding that they go out to for one day. It's constant all year long. Um, and even um, they can request observation and feedback. Um, it's actually quite exciting to watch teachers' beliefs change. Because as they change practice, they begin to notice changes in the students. And that's very rewarding and very motivating for the teachers. Uh, Proper resources are very important. They need them. Um, You can't read if you don't have uh, books. So we we really push for a really well-stocked and up-to-date library. Um, to invite the children into the wonder of reading, to uh, connect with characters and their feelings, um, to read um, about animals they may never have seen or visit places they didn't know existed, to delve into imagination. Uh, Schools need to budget and they need to maintain up-to-date reading materials for the children. Uh, We were in one school um, and there was a book about the moon and the last page said one day, man may go to the moon. So we <laughs> <I'll> come back. <laughs> the, the up-to-date part, some of you may not have even seen it on TV, but, but I was old enough to see to watch it. <laughs> uh, in, uh, in one of the First Nations schools
1: where um, the, the books written by First Nations authors were um, uh, shown in their own collection, uh, a little boy turned to me and said, I didn't know First Nations people wrote books. <laughs> So, you know, even to um, to move literacy in in that way, uh, the children can start to begin to see themselves as a reader and a writer because it's important in their
2: community. Going back to what Vaughn was saying about that accurate, effective PD, it was such an amazing thing for me to see our teachers uh, grab that PD. Quickly, systemically, in our limited budgets, we can only afford about six PD days a year. So it's very difficult to get um, mm-hmm. good um, instruction happening. As an administrator, if I don't have a great background in literacy, there's thousands of programs out there all vying for my attention. But when we when we watched uh, Vaughn work with teachers, uh, that relative, accurate, effective strategy handed off to them and very quickly, as you say, they get to see the change in their students. Whereas a lot of times, We just see a spinning of wheels and and no matter how hard we're working, we're just not seeing those results.
3: And there's also an an imperative of uh, of assessment uh, that teachers continue to use assessment pieces to inform what they're teaching. Um, I was involved uh, uh, in EQAO back as a classroom teacher when it first came out. And uh, back then we used to get the booklets back and you could see um, what your children, how they wrote their thinking and what their writing looked like. And it was a huge aha moment for me uh, because I had thought I'm a pretty good teacher. When I looked at my booklets, I wasn't quite so sure. But then I decided, yes, I was pretty good, but I could be a lot better. So, that reflecting on taking a look at those assessments, thinking, how can I change my teaching? What do I need to do? And then giving that feedback to the children, welcoming into the world of um, instructional language, um, teaching them, setting the goals with them. Um, So many schools and boards have a huge long list of assessment pieces that take forever and take away from teaching that don't really give you uh, good information, and then it's just ticked done, and it's put uh, maybe on a graph or in a filing cabinet. Um, Organizing the whole school um, for supporting the needs of their students. Um, Issues arise when schools do not have a solid plan for the identification of struggling students and providing knowledgeable staff uh, and sufficient time for support. Uh, oftentimes, we see teaching assistants who've had very little or no training working with the children who have the most challenges with reading.
1: Um, everywhere we work, uh, we stress the importance of um, having objective evidence of children's progress in reading. I always say to people, it's fine, you think they're reading better. It's great that you feel that they're reading better, but we need some sort of um, objective evidence that they're actually reading better and the programs are working. In the turnaround program, uh, the Ontario Provincial Program, the EQAO, Outcomes on the EQAO was the progress measure. Um, in a small pilot we're going to um, talk about in a second, uh, the two schools took the EQAO as well, and we use that as the outcome measure. But in all the other First Nation schools across the country that we work with, um, we have introduced objective, standardized norm reference tests of reading. Uh, when Mr. Martin asked us to take this on, that's what I said, for him, um, you know, I want to know that they can read. Uh, it's not about thinking or feeling they can We need some incontrovertible evidence. There is a history of misuse of standardized uh, assessments uh, used to stigmatize and discriminate against Indigenous children uh, in this country and, and, um, and in other countries. Um, my view is that it's not the test itself or the tests, it's how the tests are used and how they are interpreted by the person doing the administration. Um, one of the wonderful things about working with all the First Nations schools has been that they have embraced the use of standardized reading tests in our projects. Um, And for example, uh, the chiefs in British Columbia have written to the Minister of Education out there and said, you know, there are First Nations children in the provincial schools. Do not take away the standardized assessment. Because we want you to be accountable to show how our children are progressing and how they're progressing relative to their non-Indigenous peers. So one of the great benefits, at least for me, was how the communities embraced the data. And again, we don't use the assessments um, to to pick out individual children, to discriminate, to stigmatize. They're a measure of the success and the progress um, in our program. Uh, We want to tell you a little bit about uh, a pilot. And so when we first uh, got the call from Mr. Martin, we set out to conduct a pilot, again, um, adapting the turnaround program we'd worked on for the First Nations context. Uh, Steve was the principal in one of the two schools that was involved in the pilot. We worked there in each school for about four Four years, four years. And in fact, we worked from kindergarten to grade eight. Yes. Um, the uh, task. <laughs> the components that Vaughn talked about earlier about what's needed for success, they were all the focus of the program. Um, it was really important to embrace and value the identity of the children, their language, their culture, their background, and their community, and that played a big part in the in the pilot and and also in the other schools since essential for success. Absolutely. And when children come to school and they're valued and they're um, you know they're engaged and all of that really helps with the literacy, especially if they're reading books written by um, indigenous people and writing. The stories and history of their of their own people. So after uh, four years we were tracking the progress of the children on the EQAO. So these are the students from uh, two different schools and you can see the results of the grade three, the grade uh, three reading and writing over the years and the same thing in grade six on the EQAO. Ouija soda is the Ojibwe word for what we called our project So uh, I'm gonna focus on grade three. When we began, only 13% of the children in these two schools were meeting expectations or exceeding them on the EQAO, which is level three, level four. You can see how things improved. Uh, By 2014, 70% of the children were achieving or, or, or exceeding the standard. And in fact, the following year after the program had ended, though, that number rose to 81%. You see the same sort of trend in writing in uh, 2009 and 10, 33% of the children, and uh, four years later, 78%, and that was 90% by the the year after the program ended. You see the same sort of um, trends in grade six. The trajectories of progress in uh, the two schools was a little bit different. Um, by the time everything was said and done, uh, school one had um, outpaced the provincial average. Same was true in, um, in writing for the grade three in that same school. And the other school was very close to the provincial average. Look at grade six, reading and writing above the provincial average, and the writing was Right on point in one and uh, gaining fast and almost there in the second one. And again, a year afterwards in 2015, when the schools took the EQAO again, the scores had um, the scores had gone up. This uh, this data was first um, revealed at a press conference and later at um, a conference for provincial educators here in Ontario. And when I showed these graphs to the people in the province, there were sighs of surprise and shock and i think in some cases horror that first nations children in schools working under the conditions that steve has described could outdo the provincial counterparts
2: so there's a great headline you could come from this story our kids are not deficit. With less money, less resources, giving a chance, not an equal playing field, our students outperform provincial standards. So I always tell the story and illustrate that point. Our kids are not deficit. Just imagine what we can do if we ever get that equal playing field.
1: The data was important to us, this type of data.
2: The data was very important. Um, I had to do some preliminary work around standardized testing. I had to market, say, look, we don't label our kids here. These are pieces of evidence. And when I would talk to chief and counsel the first year or two, all I had was good news stories. And, then, and I'm sure they thought, oh, this is just the principal bragging about the school. <laughs> when I started putting this data up on the board, all of a sudden, people's ears perked up. And all of a sudden, I had a lot more buy-in. This isn't Steve just overinflating marks, as we were talking about earlier. This is real. This is true. And, and it, it was phenomenal. Is it was, it was a, what a story it is.
1: Um, I always say, if there were a reading competition in the Olympics, the children from these two schools would represent Canada, and those First Nations children would bring us back the gold medal. They are that good, that good. Um, What happens when things stop? How do you sustain progress like this?
2: Because I've talked a little bit about the systemic issues and that we're alone in our ban-operated schools. Our success is our fragile house of cards because it's the people in the building that have the knowledge. And so we have this small school that stands alone. And when we have two or three people leave, particularly the people that have most of that knowledge, it's detrimental. And and it can topple that house of cards because the success is that fragile in these systemic uh, situations.
1: And when word spread about the success of um, some of the First Nation schools we work with, the next thing was that uh, local school boards started to take the teachers. Yes.
2: Coaching our teachers, recruiting our teachers. They knew that we had some of the best teachers around. And uh, because of those differences in salaries, I, I don't blame teachers when they can make 20, 30 grand more walking eight kilometers down the road. I mean, it's a, kind of an easy decision.
3: You saw the same thing in in turnaround uh, the provincial program, Vaughn. Yeah, um, programs are only sustainable. Uh, programs actually aren't sustainable. What's sustainable is not in the air. It's what in the. It's what's within the person. So if I'm a really good teacher and I leave a school, hopefully I'm taking that knowledge with me to use it somewhere else. If you take too many teachers out of that school and there's not that core left and you match it with a principal who may have a different priority, then it's not going to be sustainable within that school. Um, Actually, in in the turnaround program, many of the teachers went uh, to be resources within the board, or actually some of the principals went to the ministry. Uh, So we would hope that they would be taking that knowledge and um, bringing that knowledge forward but the issue with sustainability within the school is always who's there and did they put enough support in there to maintain it?
1: Um, We hear a lot about um, equity and inclusion. We hear a lot about 21st century skills and so on, learning skills. Um, We take a lot of that with a pinch of salt. The reality is, If you cannot identify the letters of the alphabet accurately by the time you're nine or 10. Or if they're made out of feathers and you can't actually see the letter. (laughs) Then all talk of developing these critical thinking skills and um, 21st century learning skills go out the window. It's not that they're not important. It's that for some children and some schools, you're never going to get there unless you teach them to read. the other thing, and it it always um, it always comes back to me, I always think, you know, we're great in education, talking about equity and inclusion. What we need to do is maybe talk less about it and teach children the tools they need to go out and get equity justice for themselves. That's Thank okay. you so
0: much for that. That was wonderful. Um, teacher knowledge and training play such a key role in student reading outcomes. Dr. O'Sullivan's experience in faculties of education, I'm curious about her thoughts about whether Ontario teachers are currently sufficiently prepared to teach reading effectively in line with research findings, and if not, what you think needs to change.
1: Um, I don't think graduates of any faculty of education anywhere in this country are prepared well enough to teach reading, especially to children who struggle. there's many reasons uh, behind it. I mean, For example, very few, if any, programs ask for um, a course in linguistics for uh, candidates who are going to be primary elementary teachers, which it would be a help. The programs themselves are subject to accreditation and regulation by governments or the Ontario College of Teachers here in um, this province. And so they're required to have a bit of this, a bit of that, a bit of the other, you know, and with insufficient time or flexibility because of the accreditation regulations to focus in uh, and help teachers create the expertise they, they need. Across the country, there's different certifications for licensing. Um, when you go out to be hired in a school board, the, te- the, the principals would look for the most part at what um, the, the person supervising your student teaching had to say. Um, there's many, many layers. And until they all the layers start to play together, I don't anticipate seeing any any great change and that's all apart from the philosophical research ideological differences within the field of reading, which also exist within faculties of education. When I was in yeah. Roise, I brought together um, um, an interesting uh, member from each faculty in the province, save one, and they created a marvelous document over two days about what needs to be included in a Bachelor of Education for teachers to be able to teach reading from day one on the job. And even when it was completed, everyone knew, this is never gonna see the light of day because it would take the entire program.
0: Wow, yeah, there is so much to teach. Um, From what you said, uh, Vaughn was speaking about this as well, both in terms of the actual content knowledge and also the pedagogy, the, the how do you teach it as well as what is it that you need to teach. Uh, we did speak about teacher training, where there are also changes in uh, the philosophy or approach, changes in the, the resources that were being used. Anything specific that you wanted to add to that one? Uh,
3: well, when we move into schools, um, we don't just say, okay, stop doing everything you're doing and now do, oh, <laughs> we don't have enough time to tell you everything. So, <laughs> so we have to figure out what, what's our first step what's our what's our stepping in point where are they what's their understanding and let's have a look at the children and find out where where are where are the issues here uh, one of the things that we noticed um, that the children you know oral language is the basis for reading and writing um, but but reading and writing we we uh, we have a code and we have to learn that code so we have to learn what those letters are and what sounds do we associate from our oral language to those letters? And that was a, almost not done in many of our schools. So many of our schools have purchased uh, the trendy kits of the day. Uh, kids couldn't read them. <laughs> they just kept looking at the book. masks on, masks off. <laughs> and so when you're looking at working with teachers, you have to think, what. What's gonna get the biggest bang for the buck right away? So many of them didn't know about teaching um, structured, explicit, sequential phonics, or even what the difference between sort of phonemic awareness and phonics was and how important it was. So we actually purchased a program for them, And we worked through it each week with them, even though I said there's no silver bullet, there isn't. But to make it easier so that it was an instructional strategy for us, we purchased Hagerty Phonemic Awareness for all the different grades. And we didn't just give it to them we worked through it with them and talked about it and then we moved on from there so we had that stepping in point because even when you're teaching and you're teaching we need need to know this and you have to teach that it's grasping from for those things all the time what what's a good word what's this what's that it was there it was on their lap they could do it they could see it made the difference with the children and it was challenging at the beginning and they said oh too hard the kids aren't listening but they persevered we kept coming back together talking about it and now they love it and we actually have just repurchased the 2022 version because we think that that they've listened to a lot of the research and some of the feedback from the field is it perfect no but it's a great stepping in point and it's a great teaching point to support the teachers with it so we also structured some of the things that we that they do and we help them plan for it there's just so much to learn that's the problem and they can't learn it all at once you could have a whole a whole i mean when you think teaching is a practice and what we get the least of when we're training is practice in anything so i forget how many hours are dedicated in teaching um, language arts across language arts across the country maybe 24 hours in an initial teacher education program and when you think what do you need to know about kindergarten what do you need to know about grade one grade three is different uh, grade seven and eight is different there's so much to learn that you can't possibly learn it and then go out a couple of weeks and do one practice teaching here and one practice over here And you can't
1: learn it in a a lecture theater either. No. Uh, Teaching is, as we say in the business, an action word, a verb. Yeah. Uh, You learn it by doing. You learn it by practicing. You learn it with coaches over and over again. We need apprenticeships, an apprenticeship approach, I think, in initial teacher education and then continuing education that builds on that. But to even get that across the country, there would need to be
3: some consensus on what it is teachers need to know in order to be able to teach reading well. And the exciting thing I think now is that there's a grand consensus on what teachers need to know. The difficulty is what does it look like tomorrow in my class and where do I start and where do I go next? That's the some of the problem for teachers and the problem of practice for teachers. And, and everything you need to know is in the Right to Read report. I was going to say it's. Okay. I mean, I'm on chat lines and different yeah. things because I think as a teacher, if you don't continue to be a learner, no matter how old you are, maybe you, maybe it's not the right profession for you. But yeah. I I notice it's had a huge impact, a very positive impact. I see teachers, at, you know, vulnerable teachers asking questions. I'm trying this. What right. about this? I see it, you know, not just here in Ontario, but throughout Canada, throughout the United States. They're talking about it. It's a great catalyst
0: for change. That's fantastic to hear that um, that you're hearing about the Right to Read report in, in different schools as well. Our work, especially with the Martin
1: Foundation, is cited in the report. Um, we were very pleased about that. Yes.
0: Yeah. Yes, there is um, an entire section in the report about the needs of Indigenous students and also the Indigenous right to education was mentioned in there. I know that's something that uh, was very important to see mentioned. One of the things that you mentioned that I think a lot of people might find surprising is the, the big pay difference between teachers in First Nations schools often and teachers in provincial schools. And I I guess I wanna know, and I want everyone listening here to know why that is and what we can do to advocate for that to be changed.
2: Well, it's definitely a human rights issue. I mean, once again, to have a two tier education system, one based on children born on reserve, uh, just by that fact alone, they receive less money, less support. It is a treaty right. Uh, It's a treaty right that I would contend Canada hasn't fully honored yet. So, And the disparity of salaries with teachers is just kind of the the top of the mountain of of the systemic issues we face. We don't have the time here, but to talk about all the impacts of not having second-level services, that's phenomenal. The impacts are are phenomenal. Um, And going back to your question about the pay disparity, it's very difficult, as I said at the beginning, to recruit and retain good teachers. So we're, we're coming up with different ways to recruit those teachers. One of the things that I think we do really well in our schools, despite that disparity is, is we look at the whole child. So we're talking mentally, physically, uh, spiritually, and um, emotionally. So that's a great success we have in our schools. As Vaughn was talking about the, the knowledge is within the people. And, and that's something as first nations people, we grow up, we grow up in that context of looking at things holistically, looking at each other in place. So, um, there are some great things that happen in our schools that I think teachers really grab onto. I want to teach at a first station school because of A, B, and C. But at the end of the day, that salary disparity, the lack of support and resources for children is really the whole crux of, of um, the issue of disparity. And once again, it's a, it's a very real human rights issue. All of our communities, our leadership has been advocating for that equal playing field Ever since we started uh, formal education on reserve I won't go into this, but we have very good traditional education systems pre contact. And through residential school and all those other things we're left with the these structures, but as Murray Sinclair says. The very structure that caused the damage is the same structure that can provide healing and success so we're constantly working hard on our own end, to try and equal that playing field, but the government really has to step up and do its part, and, and so far, it's is falling far short.
1: Steve, you know many people, well, not many, but some anyway, when uh, looking at our work, have uh, made comments like, teaching uh, First Nations children to read and write is colonial. This is Western. This is not what um, Indigenous peoples want. This is not how we learn
2: what do you that's absurd um like i said we had our own formal education system and we've always been a very literate people oral language um reading the land symbols and patterns that's what reading's about so we've always been a strong literate uh group of people once again through those structures of residential school colonization all those things you know we we've lost some of our original uh um uh, structures that we had and and we're in the process of trying to reclaim those but literacy is very indigenous we've been indigenous people for tens of thousands tens of thousands of years
1: did you ever have a parent or a grandparent who came to your school and said i'm enrolling my child and after eight years in this school i don't expect him to be able to read or write well
2: that deficit notion that we hit upon (laughs) a little bit i mean our communities begin to start thinking oh for some reason, we're deficit in educating our our children because of the chronic underachievement. Yeah. But as principals, leadership, as teachers, as staff in that school, we constantly do a PR uh, campaign of of all the successes. We talk about the systemic issues. A lot of our own people may not know the impact of those systemic issues. So we we try to educate our community what we're up against. But going back to what I said earlier, we don't use those as excuses. And good teaching can circumvent all that. And we have the evidence to prove it. We sure do.
0: (laughs) (laughs) That's amazing. Um, I had one more question. It kind of goes back to something that you said earlier in um, in the presentation, Julia, where you were talking about you've never seen a report card where it says, honestly, your child is in grade four and reading at a grade one level and they're you know unlikely to ever catch up um how can teachers get support for having those difficult conversations with parents and putting in place plans to improve things so for example are you available for consulting with school boards with groups of teachers (laughs) within a particular region or school uh, school
1: we are interested in consulting with anyone who is trying to improve reading and writing uh, for children everywhere. We really are.
0: Amazing. So maybe we Thank should you. leave it with letting people know how they could perhaps get in touch with you if they were interested in learning more or um, asking you questions.
1: Um, one thing uh, we should say is anyone who wants to learn more about our work with the First Nation schools, because we're in 18 across the country now, could go to the website of the Martin Family Initiative and just uh, take a look at our reports. I think anyone else who wants to contact us, if they contacted you, Alicia, if you wouldn't mind being a (laughs) go-between.
0: Happy to, absolutely. That's wonderful. Well, thank you um, all so much um, to all of you for your presentation. It was wonderful chatting with you. You have such fantastic insights. I think it will be very much appreciated for people to hear this. So thank you so much. Thank you, bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dyslexia Canada's Spotlight. If you liked this podcast, please subscribe and share the link to this episode on social media. And let's keep the conversation going. If you have a story of progress that you would like to share, please get in touch with us by visiting dyslexiacanada.org.